Hey there, it's Bailey Hancock, career happiness strategist, creator of The One Year Career, and your host of The Bailey Hancock Show, a podcast that helps people figure out how to make big career moves with small steps. Navigating your career doesn't have to suck. I'm here to help you learn to love the process. Hey guys, welcome back to The Bailey Hancock Show. Today we have one of my friends and former camp buddies, Ben Brooks, who is just a dynamic, fascinating human being in general, but he also happens to be a career expert because Ben is the CEO and founder of Pilot, which is an innovative career improvement company revolutionizing the way individuals command their careers. Sounds very intense. It's incredible. Dun, 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 Pilot. Um, So we're going to get to have Ben tell us all about all of that. But Ben, welcome to the party. Glad to be here. So happy to have you back. And because I'm super transparent with everybody that listens, this is actually take two of mine and Ben's conversation. (laughs) We had technological glitches and we decided, fuck it, you guys deserve better. We're going to re-record the whole thing. So we're going to try and capture some of that magic this time around and you'll probably get some new stuff. So you know, thanks technology. Who knows? Maybe Mercury was retrograde back then. I'm sure it was. It seems to always be freaking retrograde. So we well, are in the part of, part of mastery is a lot of revs, right? A lot of exactly. Lot of loops, so, yeah. Exactly. And you know, I feel like we're kind of too perfectionists. We expect a lot from ourselves, but yeah, I know on my end when I'm listening to podcasts and the sound is bad, it immediately goes to the next one. And this conversation was too good to do that. So Ben, start us at the very beginning. What did little Ben want to be when he grew up? Little Ben wanted to be a lot of things. <laughs> I, when I, starting when I was about two years old, I wanted to plan every day. I'm a, I'm a planner. You just so wanted I, to plan. Just to plan. I would say, mama, what are we going to do today? <laughs> At the beginning of the day, I wanted an agenda, an itinerary. That was like how I thought. It didn't even really matter what it was as long as we had a plan. Were you a big fan of like writing it out as well? Or how did the plan have to come together? We would talk about it. But as I grew older, I like writing stuff down. And now I love an agenda and a calendar. And I'm not overly rigid about it. Like things can change or shift. But it's nice to just kind of have it knowing going in. Now, sometimes it's also delightful for me to have a completely unstructured day as well. But, um, But as a kid, you know, I thought about, you know, um, business was always the thing that interested me. At first, you know, I wanted to be a game show host. And I thought I wanted to be a journalist and a politician. But the thing that kept coming up is is to be like a businessman. And I, you know, had these sort of kind of you know probably gender biased sure. views of what you know business looked like from my you know ten year old viewpoint. But we'd ride our bikes to Office Depot and I'd buy the triplicate things and I had a speakerphone. We'd write people's names on the speed dial. Oh, yeah. And you know, I I was into it. I managed my you know, families like internet plans and all that, get an internet service provider from some like local company and a separate email account from another company. And, you know, I was just, I would like, I just, and I like business. I like the idea of running things. Where do you think that came from? I don't know. Cause it's, it, you know, both my parents are, are, are very bright and dynamic and interesting, but they don't have as much of kind of that commercial edge to them. My dad in science, my mom in, in social work and education and um, very dedicated to both their professions. But I, um, I, you know, I've got uh, relatives on both sides kind of higher up the family tree that have been entrepreneurs and heating and air conditioning or owned a kind of a butcher shop or things like that. But, um, but in some ways, like it's, it seems just kind of very just like self-expressed, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I was always a very organized kid. My mom would stick me in front of the pantry and I would pull all of the food out and put it back in super organized and according to height and color. And I mean, I'm sure both of our moms were like, who the hell are these children and where did they come from? I was, we, we'd have a car and we would pack the trunk 
and where you know sometimes you'd have a rental car and it would all in and I was like nobody put anything in because I yes. had a, and I and I was like the spatial game of Tetris and surprisingly spatially I'm not that great but I just could somehow figure it all out you know and it was like the patience to try and to move something around and I, we had certain members of my family that I won't name that would you know just jam that trunk down you know just shut it yeah I'm sure yeah. I'm sure us as children could be quite frustrating to those around oh I, I was just an angel just I think they call it precocious yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> okay so take me on to say high school were you still a wannabe businessman at that point were you involved in school extracurriculars yeah I mean I was in FBLA and DECA two different business clubs and I'd gone to nationals in one and kind of our state finals in another and done well and but I also was involved in our city government I um, was the chair of a youth advisory board and helped run political campaigns and I got my Eagle Scout award when I was 15 I was just pretty young uh, for Eagle Scout, and and I got to just start to get to travel, and I got a, went on a trip to D.C., and I was just very curious. I got a job. I worked at Safeway. Um, I was in the union. I had, like, my own health insurance, so I was like, told my parents that I could stick it because I had my own insurance. <laughs> you know, I was making, like, 400 bucks a week probably, but, you know, but, you know, so. That's power as a teenager. $400 a week is, like, a yeah. million dollars. Well, I, we had union rules. We had long shifts. We had a lot of minimums. I was actually kind of, as a young kid, I was like, I get why the union's good for maybe older people, but as a young person, like, sometimes they're just going to want to, I want to work for two hours and not for four or six or whatever, you know, so. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. So what'd you do when you went off to college? What was your next move? So I had worked um, uh, as a telebanker, so like a personal banker over the telephone in a call mm -hmm. center um, for our, a regional bank. And then I, in, in college, I, you know, worked on campus and I um, worked at a summer camp at Stanford University one summer. Uh, my first time to California was living there for two and a half months, which was a fun, wonderful place to be. Um, and then I worked, um, I had a great internship at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And, you know, they enterprise hires more college graduates than any other company and one of the top 10 best places to start a career. And it's just a, it's a wonderful training environment um, in a super, probably one of the most fun jobs that I've ever had. What was fun about that? Every branch was its own P&L, so profit and loss statement kind of operated as an independent uh, business almost, even though it wasn't a franchise, it was part of the, the company. But we just, it was just like a very get it done kind of place. Like mm -hmm. I could rent a car for a dollar a day. You know, oh, that's pretty solid. You know, like, and I could also rent it for a thousand a day, you know, and it was just what it was my judgment around these, you know, we had rates and discounts and things, but it was just, it was always like, what do we need to get it done? Like, how can we be flexible? Sometimes we'd have seven people at our branch waiting for a car and we didn't have cars. We'd put them in taxis and deliver cars later. And we just, mm. you know, it was a lot of, it was very entrepreneurial in terms of problem solving, the hustle, sales, you know, part of the reason enterprises will pick you up in their ads that's all for discovery, for sales. So they do a lot of local insurance replacement when you have your cars in the shop, but it's mm -hmm. also to like know, can they give you a referral for car sale? Can they sell you insurance? Can they upsell mm -hmm. you? Because you have time in the car where you oh, get a lot brilliant. of information. It's like, oh, Bailey, you, you know, gosh, you, you usually drive this Lexus SUV and you know, I know you have Geico and they're gonna put you in a Ford Fiesta and oh my gosh, you're going up to the mountains of Tahoe. Oh my, you know, you, you probably don't wanna, you know, and it made it much easier to give you essentially what you wanted and upsell you a bit um, because of that. And I learned a lot about sort of listening and, you know, conversation is a way to get information. And, and it, was, it was really an excellent place to work. And did you get to try out a bunch of different roles there? So yeah, they have the primary like kind of management trainee uh, thing means you do everything. So you're in one role, but you do a variety of different things. So it's, mm -hmm. you do corporate accounts sort of sale, maintenance, you know, and you know, it wasn't like changing oil, but I had to manage, you know, where the cars were and where they maintained. Mm -hmm. and 
you know, and, and uh, it was just a really fun, uh, but strenuous sort of place to work. Yeah, I've never heard anything negative, honestly, about working at Enterprise. It's definitely one of those people that I admire who have come out and gone on to be management and, you know, C-suite level. A lot of them have had that first out-of-college experience. So it sounds like they've really got the training and professional development thing down there. Totally. And did that, would you say, you know, did you find that being able to be professionally developed in that way and given those opportunities to learn and really just be fast and loose and problem solve, did that speak to that little two-year-old Ben's soul of wanting to be a businessman? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would be exhausted, you know. And I liked, you know, I had physical jobs. You know, Safeway was somewhat physical. And when I worked for the Parks Department one summer in my city, it was extremely physical. You know, operated big power equipment and drove a dump truck and dug ditches and baseball fields and all these sort of butch things, I guess, you know. But <laughs> um, but I'd be exhausted. But, but you know, I just I just like pouring myself. I like the day flying by. I liked... Um, just not knowing what every day, every day was going to be different and interesting and kind of being worn out at the end of the day felt very satisfying to me. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was a great, a great thing to do um, right at the end of kind of my college time before I was, a, you know, kind of out in the professional world. So this was prior to college graduation. Yep, exactly. Okay. So what happened next? So I thought I was going to work in medical device sales. Why? I, it was, I got referred because the enterprise, you know, had a lot of people going to pharma sales. And so I thought, you know, pharma medical device, it's, you know, um, you know, my dad was in sales and I thought this could be a good career for me and make good money. And, um, and I got into final rounds with a very prominent medical device company. And I talked a lot about what I was learning in school and I was so excited. And it was the thing that I kind of clung to because I felt smart and I, and impressive. And the thing was, the thing I was talking about wasn't the thing that was the thing at the company, right? The thing oh. at the, I was talking about supply chain and logistics and materials and all these things that were very important, but sales sort of hung the moon. Mm. And so in the final round interview, I didn't get the job. And, I, and if, if I was on their side, I wouldn't have hired me either um, because, you know, I was talking not about the number one thing to them, which is sales. Mm. Um, and so here I was at graduation, having had all these internships and I got a 3.9 GPA and I studied abroad four times. I, you know, I did, you know, some student government, all these things. And here I was jobless. I turned down Accenture, I turned down Enterprise and a couple other full-time offers I had and spent the summer sort of figuring it out. Um, and then wound up at Lockheed Martin, largest mm. defense contractor in the world, which is a somewhat unusual place for college graduates to go immediately, um, especially without an engineering degree. And I yeah. wound up on a classified spy plane development program. How does one wind up on that program? Well, I went to interview and it was through my university. It was a connection. And then the day that they were finding out if they won this award and in defense contracting, you compete for business against Boeing and Harris and BA, these big companies. And they won the program the day of my interview. And they said, if we win this program, and then they had this huge party. And apparently, and never another day at Lockheed Martin was never like that. Like, I, it just ruined me. Because I was like, oh, my God, what a great place. There was never a party for anything ever again. Um, but it was like this big win because it was this, this new technology and a type of business they didn't typically win. And so I, I went there. And it was very, very different than Enterprise. But also a wonderful learning um, experience. Business Week, uh, you know, again, rates like top companies to work for recent college grads and enterprise was in the top 10 at that time. And so was Lockheed Martin. Hmm. So I'd worked at two of them. Um, and I was get I was getting, you know, you know, weeks of training a year. I got to get my black, uh, six Sigma black belt, lean six Sigma black belt training. I got to uh, travel all over the place. I lean management learned. techniques. That's sexy. Yeah. The eight <laughs> forms of waste, you know, <laughs> I can, ooh, put some Kaizen on that. Mm. <laughs> the ice cream at me. 
you know, all weekend. So speaking my language. So it was. So it was. You know, I got to do a variety of uh, of cool things there. I think, and I learned. I've worked with people that literally rocket scientists, right? Men and women from that had been in the military. A lot of rigor, a lot of structure. Mm. They worked ex- real professionals, right? You know. And, uh, but one of the things I didn't particularly care for is it wasn't a meritocracy. You know, I got a, I got a promotion and a raise on my two year anniversary yep. because I had been there for two years. That was my was very, first job too. Two years on the nose. Yeah. Demoralizing. So I was it like, gosh, I, and I was, and I was kind of the lead of this group and I was supervising people that were making double the money that I was making. And I was, you know, but they just were older and had been there a while. And so I was extremely grateful for that experience, but I knew after, you know, three plus years that it was time to move on. Yeah, that was, it was actually, I take that back. It was supposed to be on my two-year anniversary, but my two-year anniversary fell in October of 2009, (laughs) which, uh, remember that time frame? Yeah, it was a little little dark, yeah. (laughs) A little dark in terms of outlook on our economy and our country, so they suspended all promotions and bonuses and advancements regardless, and I remember, you know, sitting in with my boss that day and her having to break the news to me. And me and this other girl who started the same week went into the stairwell and like sobbed because, you know, we didn't like that idea either that it was just no matter what at two years, every two years on the nose, you're, unless you screw up royally, you're getting promoted to the next level and you're getting a boost in pay. So we had kind of just surrendered to that idea for those two years. To not get it though. And then for it to be swept out from below us. And, you know, I totally understand there's no way they could have done it anyway, but, and we had a board of directors, so it was definitely out of the question, but it, that was demoralization on top of demoralization. (laughs) So it's like, not only does it not matter how hard you work, you're not even going to get it just because if something goes wrong. Exactly. Yeah, that sucked. That was a big turn, I think, in my in my career in the very beginning. It was a great lesson, though. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, listen, you're not guaranteed anything. Nobody yep. owes you anything. And, you know, I think probably that lodged something in the back of my brain that said, FYI, the only time you're going to be in charge truly of your promotion and, and your money is if you work for yourself. But I did not let that come to be for a very long time. But so go on. So you're at the three-year mark with Lockheed. What are you starting to set your sights on next? What about that job did you want to take with you to the next job? What about were you sure that you were like, yeah, I'm done with this? Well, you know, I, I love the structure, the rigor, the discipline, the thoroughness. I mean, when you're building an airplane or a spacecraft or a missile or making a no-fly list or writing the census counting software or processing social security checks, all the things that Lockheed did, um, you got to be accurate. You know, so there was a level, the bar was very high there for results and performance and output. Um, sometimes that was a, you know, it's a lot of work. And I had worked on some new business development teams and we won a couple billion dollar award, which was really cool. And um, I got to work on a small business and minority supplier group. And I got to, you know, go to all these border towns and got to go to Native American business conferences. So I got to do a lot of really interesting things. But I also, I had, um, I think like eight or 10 managers over oh, God. So it just, it just was a lot of churn and the restructuring and things. And, I, and you know, I wanted a meritocracy. I wanted a, a different environment where some of my skills could be celebrated more because you're always sort of, you know, lower caste by not being an engineer there. I even True. had an engineering title at one point, which helped a little bit. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I had a mentor and this guy was an executive at a large company. I met through a local round table that I would attend, you know, once a month. And he uh he would have like lunches with me and he was this you know older guy and had a lot of advice and really smart but tough and 
he said, you know, go read What Color Is Your Parachute? Classic. And he, said, and he said, and there's a bunch of exercises and it's a pain in the ass and it's going to take a lot of time. And I don't want to hear from you until it's completely done. Oh, to have a mentor that's just no nonsense like that is such a gift. Oh, loved it. So Michael says this to me and, uh, and Michael Cannon is his name. And he was, a, he ran DHL for all of South America for a number of years, lived in Brazil and been all over the world and really bright guy. And um, so I finally did it and I, and I powered through it and kind of put the flower diagram together. And um, interestingly enough, one of the, the example flower di diagram in that book is my mom's mentor is the one. So it's just like this small, whoa. it was like, whoa. Yeah. And it was very useful. And he's like, okay, well, you can do operations, sales, or consulting is probably the three things you could be in. So it just was, I said, I think consulting is it, you know? And then it was just a matter of like, you know, I, I ended up going on a date in Chicago. I was visiting Chicago. I lived in Denver at the time. And uh, th this guy had said, you know, oh, I'm working for this firm. And I was like, oh, I never really heard of that firm. And I looked it up and it sounded really interesting. And a couple months later, I'm you know, talking to Michael again about what I want. I said, you know, I want to do aviation, but I kind of like Lean Six Sigma, but I like owner for a global firm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, which one of those I should pick. And I was flying home from Phoenix and I had good old USA Today that I had gotten at my Holiday Inn Express. You know, 100% uh, on the doorstep. <laughs> yep, yep. Like really, really living the luxe business traveler life. You know, I'm flying Frontier Airlines. I had Ooh. had high, high enough status so you get a free beer on the flight. Whoa, and, I didn't even know they had liquids to drink on those flights. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So this is a, di a different era, you know? It's True. A, so so um, I read this thing about, an article about aviation. I've always loved airplanes and aviation and kind of self-taught. And it quotes this guy named John Seeliger and said, John Seeliger, Oliver Wyman, which is the firm I'd heard about on the date in Chicago, Oliver Wyman's global Lean Six Sigma aviation practice leader. And it was like, ding, 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 like, like all roads lead to Rome. And this is Rome. Yes. He's basically like, that's who you wanted to be next. Yeah. I was like, this is the, this is where I want to be. And here's, you know, so I uh, did some diligence, AKA internet stalking. And um, just read all these white papers. That I assumed he wrote all these white papers. I later find out that there's an entire infrastructure to company like that to write. Of course, white papers. yeah. And it's not the it's not the partner. Yeah. Um, but but I, I read them as if they were like John Grisham novels, and just you know flipping through them. You know, um, it was like you know Fifty Shades of Aluminum. You know, and I'm going through. You know, sexy. <laughs> exactly, airplane stuff. And uh, and and I just finally decided to reach out to him. And on a Sunday, I wrote a very bold letter. And I, I remember this really hot pool party that was supposed to, everyone was going to be at. And I thought, I got to just reach out to these people. And mind you, they didn't have any job postings online in this group. And I remember reading in, in um, What Goes Your Parachute that 50% of jobs are not posted online. And I thought, okay, well, like, let's not let that stop me. And I just said, hey, like, John, like, I read about you in USA Today, I read your white papers. The more I learn about your firm, it seems like a place I'd like to work. I'm going to be moving into consulting at a top management consultancy in aviation. And Oliver Wyman is my first choice. And if I don't work for you all, I'll work for one of your competitors. Ooh. I'm definitely going to be in your industry. And was this in a your... handwritten letter? Was this an email? This was on letterhead. And I printed letter. You know, So typed, type, printed, got typed, it. Like nice. And and I just said, I you know, included in this, I said, you know, I, I put a slide deck that I had an interview with an airline recently. And I said, I put a slide deck that I put together recently for an airline about my perspectives on how to make operations better. And um, I hope you enjoy this model airplane. And anyone in aviation collects model airplanes. And it was the Singapore Airlines A380, which hadn't even flown yet, the double-decker plane. And it was like the new hot, like, like where did you get this, right? And where did I put you all, get that? 
online at like, I don't know, aviationnerd.com or something, but like, you know. <laughs> don't worry, guys. We'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, we have an affiliate program. Bailey's going to get like half a model. You'll see it in the back of the thing. You know? So, so we, so we have, uh, you know, this, this model I put in there and I just said, um, I will call you next week because I'd like to have lunch and I will fly myself to Dallas where he lived, right? Uh, to have lunch with you at my expense to talk about my career. Like it wasn't like, it just was like, here's what's happening. Like I'm working in your industry. I want to work from you. I'm coming to Dallas. We're talking. And I, I, I don't know, I, 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 maybe once or twice in my life ever up till now, I've done something kind of like that bold. Probably. How old you know? are you at this point? 25 or six. I feel like that's the perfect gray zone between the, what is it? When you feel like you can never die. Like the, the syndrome in your youth, when you think you're just going to live forever, right. Mm-hmm. Versus the later half of your twenties and beyond where you're very aware of your mortality and you're very aware of like, shit doesn't go the way you want that 25 zone. You're still, you're a little of both worlds. Totally. I, I just bought a house. I wasn't planning to leave Denver, mind you, you know, I just bought a house and was remodeling it. I didn't even put any money down. I was like flying loose and just like, it was just, you know, and, and I was like, let's go for it. Let's, let's do this. And, and no one really coached me on this exact approach. I just knew that you had to be bold and get in front of people. And I thought an email is pretty lame. Any email, any jerk can send an email. And I put all this thing in the FedEx box. And I remember I, I, I sent it overnight and I was tracking it online. And then I kind of started to panic because I was like, are they going to think I'm nuts? Like, am I going to, you know, I, I had kind of like a hangover, if you will, and a little regret for being so bold and brazen. But it was a very respectful, courteous, like I would, if they put the letter in the New York Times today, I'd be very proud of it, you know? You know, um, it's funny. My husband says it, it sounds similar to when you're courting somebody, like there's such a fine line between being a stalker and being a romantic. Yes. And it's all depending on how the other person takes it. <laughs> totally. Yeah, so like what it, it's really up in the air. He could have been like, screw you, bro. Like, bro, who the hell do you think you are talking to me this way? Or been crazily impressed by your, your braveness and your, you know, your audacity in a great way. And I think that's a great point because if you're listening to this and you're thinking, what could I do? You want to think about the context, the industry, yeah. right? The, the geography, right? And, you know, maybe people in a different country or different part of America would have it to be different. Um, you know, uh, the kind of position, you know, if you're in an industry that we had to be bold and get noticed and be creative, you know, uh, that's appropriate. Right. Uh, but there are mm-hmm. others that, that could be, that could be turned off as like, um, too brazen or, or, um, whatever. And, and so I remember tracking on FedEx.com. I, uh, I see that the package gets signed for, I'm like, well, it got there, you know, and it goes to the Dallas office and they're headquartered in New York, but this guy's based in Dallas. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I just, you just, you know. I said, Did I you give him your week. phone number or you yeah, said all, all we're going to follow yeah, up? Email, okay. Oh, I had blood type. I had, you know, my social, I had, you, you know, can find me anywhere. Yeah. I'm an organ donor. I mean, I had it all in there, <laughs> you know, like what kind of guys I was into everything. And so, so I, I, um, in two hours later, I get an email exactly two hours from when the package hit and it's from someone named Alex. And I wrote the thing to John and Alex is in New York, not Dallas where John is based, but Alex also works for the company. And he says, hey, we got your letter and we'd love to talk and, you know, like, are you free tomorrow? So I'm thinking we're having like this chat and I'm not quite sure. And Alex, I find out is an associate partner. He like works for John, that they have multiple roles that they're hiring for. And none are promoted yet. None are online. Never Mm -hmm. were posted online because they always get garbage candidates, they said. Totally. So they're just like, we don't, that you know, we recruit in different ways and we don't do it this way. And so. Um, and so I uh, had a case interview and I, didn't, I wasn't quite prepared for that where there was 
real scenarios and I had to do math on the fly and talk about my approaches. And, you know, it was not like, tell me about a past experience. It was like, Hey, our client is a bank. Here's their issue. Da, 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 da. They're having this. Da, da, da. What is their profit margin? What's this? What's their good? Like, and just like, and I was like, Oh my God. And, and he, at the end of it said, Hey, you did really well. Here's three things you could do better in your next round. There will be a next round, but it's a logic test, a math test. So I took the math test that weekend. I thought I failed it because I got through like, I don't know, 13 of the 25 questions. And I was in a total spiral, like drank myself like to sleep. And I uh, got a call on Monday and said, hey, you did great. And I said, I didn't even finish this. Oh, no one finishes. Like it's part of the design. It psychs you out. Ugh, like, I hate tests like that. It's such a mind fuck. Totally. I was, I was in a hole and I climbed out. I was like, okay. And they said, can you, you know, it was Monday. said, so can you be in Chicago on Friday? And I had the day off already on Friday. I said, sure. So I, uh, I went um, and, and it was like, I had a great interview and a full day in Chicago and I flew home and they called me when I was at the airport. They said, you did great. Um, we want to advance you to like kind of this final round. And I'm like, this is like all happened in a period of, you know, like eight days. Wow. From the time my letter dropped, I was already in Chicago and back and the logic test and, you know, but it was That's about me taking fast. action. That's like, so fast. Like it just, but they were ready to hire. I was sure I was ready. So then I'm sitting at work at Lockheed Martin and it's, it funny enough, it was that they were recording now it was like 11 years ago tomorrow whoa and full and circle I it was the wednesday before labor day and so i so i i uh i i i, I you know get this call and they said hey we're trying, we're trying to do a day trip to new york they want me to meet in memphis and an admiral's club it's like total chaos like, i'm like yeah okay, these partners are flying all over. he's doing three countries that week and i said well i can't really get to new york and back from denver in a day and but they said and they said uh um you know, okay, well, can, can you go, can you be there tomorrow? I said, well, like, they're like, what time? I said, well, you can interview at 10. They said, well, well, I'll just book you a flight right now. So the woman just like books me, this woman, Brenda, books me a flight and it's in like five hours and I'm at work. It's like noon. So I go to my boss. I said, Hey, something's come up. I got to go. I'm really sorry. We didn't have a lot going on anyway. So it wasn't a big deal. And I said, I won't be in tomorrow. I run home. I had had no money, right? Because I put all this money in a house and I wasn't making much money at Lockheed, but I had bought myself a new tie. That was my one thing of confidence. And I had like, I think I wore like a black suit, like a funeral kind of looking suit, you know, no, like nothing, like probably men's warehouse, like nothing, like, like just, I, I, you know, just was, I, the confidence had to come from the inside out. It wasn't yep. coming from like being flawless or having money or status or nice bags or watches or any of that. Right. But I had shine shoes at the airport. I got good shoe shine for $5. Is that why they have the shoe shine guys there? Yeah, <laughs> it all makes thing. perfect sense now. And people will look at your heels, not just the toe. And they'll see if you do the whole job. They'll see if you do complete work. Wow. They, so a lot of men in particular look at the men, a man's heels as a way to see if they do complete work. So well, now I'm going to start. <laughs> so, 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 so make sure you get those heels. I, I wind up, they booked me in first class. I sit next to a woman who was an executive who had hired Oliver Wyman, the firm I was in with multiple times. Gives me a whole briefing for three hours. Was the this accidental day, or like, just, just totally serendipitous? Serendipitous. Just oh it, I mean, God. I could have put my, I could have put my headphones on, but I said, hello. And I was friendly and introduced myself and, you know, like, and, and I mean, the universe is giving us signals and gifts all the time. Left and right. Most of the time we're not paying attention, you know? And so I paid attention that day, thankfully. And uh, the next day I had an interview and the first guy I worked at the interview kind of cracked my knuckles, a real difficult interview, but I could tell he was kind of like a bad cop. And then John, the guy from USA Today comes in the room and John is like, it's kind of like goofy, sweet, super bright guy. And then at the end of the interview, he's like, you're gonna love working here. And I- oh, um, Best sentence ever to hear in an interview. 
And the next morning, I was I flew back to De Denver that night, barely made my flight, but I flew back to Denver, had a glass of champagne with my sister who was in New York at the time. And, and uh, the next morning at 8 a.m., there was like an offer letter on my doorstep. Like they were a class act. Was it FedExed? Yeah, they're shit, shit together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. and this is what, how many weeks? Two? From like, yeah, I think from the time I sent the thing, yeah, it was it was like, yeah, probably a little bit, like probably something about like 16, 17 days total. That's bananas. It started with a FedEx package and ended with a FedEx package. And, and even after my, my phone interview and my in-person interviews, I would always FedEx an overnight, overnight FedEx a thank you note because I knew they were going to make the decision. Getting my, my handwritten card with a 40 or 50 cent stamp, you know, a week later didn't have the impact. So it's 25 bucks to overnight a, a handwritten crane stationary note, but I did it because I was like, I want this job. I wanted them to know that I'm hungry for this job. And, you know, within two and a half weeks, I had moved to New York, like left my house, sold my car, never planned to live in New York. They said, move, move Chicago or New York, you choose, same salary. Why'd you choose mine. New York? I wanted to live in Chicago. I love Chicago. I go to Chicago a lot. I knew I had family in Chicago. I could bring all my stuff. I could get a much bigger apartment. But my little sister, who I'm somewhat competitive with, had just moved to New York. And I just realized people all over the world give like their left you know, nut or whatever else, you know, gender, you know, whatever uh, you got, it, whatever you got, <laughs> left something um, to, to, to move to New York. And I thought, you know, let me just give it a try. I don't know where, where, when in my life. And I only knew like two people total in New York. I'd been to New York like once, you know, I didn't know anything. Um, no East Coast connections really, but I thought, let me choose. And it ended up being one of the more important decisions of my entire life, top five for sure. I would not own a business today if I did not live in New York, that I am sure of. Why do you think that's true? You know, I think if I was in Chicago, I'd probably be, I'd probably, you know, be a executive, probably, you know, hopefully C-suite executive somewhere in a big kind of industrial like company or something. Um, there's just something that I was just around people in New York and I've traveled all over the country and the world and I have a, there's a bunch of wonderful places to live and work all over. But what I liked about New York is everyone is just like, go for it, like do it, try it. And there's just a sense of ambition and it's, and it's not like around one or two industries, it's around kind of everything. It's like you're a poet, be a beast, you know? Like be the you're in public best health. damn poet. If you're in public mm -hmm. health, save people, right? Oh, you're mm -hmm. you're in government, do this. You're you know, you're you're in banking, do this. You're in tech, you're in media, whatever. And I just liked that all of that kind of just there that was the, the ethos. And and um, you know, it ended up being a great decision, but it was a very difficult. I mean, I remember, you know, I got the job. I think there's a quote in the movie Out of Africa. Um, when, when God wants to uh, play a joke on you, he answers your prayers, mm. you know, said differently, you know, more, more tears have been shed for prayers answered than prayers given, you know, and, and, you know, a couple weeks into my job, it was so intense. I didn't get the normal training. I was an off cycle hire and I would go to bed at night and I'd cry and I'd be, you know, and it was just so hard. And like, mm. I grew more in a year there than I probably would have been, you know, five or 10 years in a traditional corporate job. Um, every year I grew at that rate and, and, uh, it, a bunch of game changing things happened, but. Um, but it was one of those things I was like, wow, this is what I fought so hard for. Mm -hmm. And yet it is so hard. And I think that's the thing that's a surprise when people get sort of dream jobs mm -hmm. is it's, it's work. Well, and there's so many things emotionally tied up when you get your dream job. There's expectations you've put on yourself that other people have put on you. I mean, you couldn't have you couldn't have given yourself the option to fuck up that job because you came in so hot to get it that I'm sure the pressure you were putting on yourself was oh. astronomical. Moving across the country, can you imagine me like, you know, limping back to Denver and I didn't, I, you know, I got counseled after, out after six months and 
whatever, like it just the shame and the identity and the ego. It was more than just like my paycheck or my title. There was so yeah, much of yeah. that tied into it, which, which some of it's healthy and a good motivator and some of it's unhealthy and was probably like extra, you know, stressful, but um, regardless, you know, um, you know, that, that sort of pressure um, created some really useful things. Created some pretty diamonds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So how long did you last there before? I mean, and did it ever get easier? Uh, it did. It did. Um, started to like know what partners wanted. It started to know how a case works, started to know how to research, know how to not worry about something or have focus and not get distracted. And I got assignments that were better suited for my skills and, um, you know, started doing similar work over and over. And I started um, an LGBT group in my company as well. And I had a pretty negative experience with joining the firm and um, pretty negative thing was said to me about being gay, that someone didn't even know I was gay. And mm-hmm. it's a story for like, it was actually, I, I talked about it with HBR. There's a case about, you know, that, and I, I can share that with you, but. Like your specific um, situation? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. wow. And and just like how to like deal when the coworker is like really offensive. And I shared my story about what happened. and. Out of that, um, me and co- a couple of colleagues founded a, a LGBT employee resource group, which we didn't have, and we ended up changing our benefits and changing our policies mm-hmm. and uh, community stuff, business development, recruiting, and like really transformed the place. When I left, our head of HR said, "You know, you you have helped you know, have a bigger impact on the firm than most partners ever do." Wow! And it was um, it was interesting because that's the thing that actually started to accelerate my career the most. I, my as a core consultant. I was getting promoted at at twice the average rate. Like, and granted, I came with more experience than people. I came in at kind of a lower level, so it's kind of expected. But but I may I really worked for that. But I called it. I had that was like my day job, and I had my gay job. Hmm. And my gay job is actually what then had me become a vice president a year after you know I left consulting, and that got me. I started meeting like. HR people and people at the corporate parent company and all sorts of things. And I got invited to events and I got other special trips. And so oftentimes everyone focuses so much and it's good. You want to nail your core job responsibilities. And I, and I did, but that's not enough. There has to be something outside of it. Not if you're wanting to advance past the people around you. Yeah. You have to stand out somehow. What's your, what we we call the firm citizenship, you know, Mm. things outside your core responsibility to make something better, you know, Mm. which could be anything. Right? It could be pro bono work, it could be your office holiday party, it could be anything, but it was like, what else is the extra thing? Mm-hmm. And so that became mine, and I ended up doing a rotation uh, in the downturn. Um, I did a rotation because we were all supposed to take some time off, and I, I said, well, I don't really want to take time off unpaid. I want to, and so I pitched, I made a bold proposal, a little like my letter to John. I made a letter to this guy, Orlando, about doing some diversity work, and he said, you know, three months diversity work, you know how about you work for me for nine months and work as a direct report instead of working for one of my vice presidents. And, um, and he was, you know, he's like in the proxy of a fortune 250 company. He's a C-suite. I mean, like a big executive. He's now the president of Holland American Cruise Lines, wow. very accomplished, you know, um, executive. He's one of the you know kind of most powerful uh, African-American executives in the fortune 500, a really fantastic guy, Orlando Ashford. And uh, ended up working for him and learned so much as brutal, difficult, tedious, emotional, but like I learned so much. And then I got a job offer in the back seat of a Lincoln town car um, coming back from this offsite that I put together uh, with one of our sister divisions, the largest insurance broker in the world. And uh, Lori, who is a fantastic boss, my Lori Ledford, I, uh, uh, she said, why don't you come work for me? And I said, well, I'm supposed to go back to consulting and Orlando's talking to me about a couple of things. She goes, well, I'd really like you to work on my team. I said, well, what's, what's the job? And she said, well, you write it down and propose it and we'll take it from there. 
So make up your job. Make up my job. So there are some perils with that, right? Because people don't know what to expect, you know, if it doesn't exist, whatever. But um, I started out as kind of an army of one, and then I left with a team of people on multiple continents and uh, some banner initiatives and game-changing things. And, you know, the, the CEO and the CEO successor knew me very well, and I was one level from them, and got to travel all over the world and do amazing things, win awards, and, and really have an impact, most importantly, on, on the business performance and the culture uh, of working there. Um, which is really about making the company and my bosses successful, which was my focus. And um, it was interesting because, you know, the, the, I'd been at the parent company and some of the views of that division were they did a lot of things really well and they were coming out of a turnaround, but some stuff around culture and people management and things weren't as good from the, that team. And I helped make those things really good. And then those people moved up to the parent company and got promoted. So, wow. um, so it, it kind of, goes to the, the psychological contract to have with a manager, I, I've always been told, is um, you take care of them and they'll take care of you. Oh, 100%. And, and yeah. employees tend to think me first, no. but it's really manager first. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the big things I talk about too, is like most people they totally take care of number one, right? Which is yep. them, which I get yep. it. Like we're all in survival mode to some extent, but truly like the people above you, your manager, number one is the one who can have your back when you're not around. They're the one that can yep. vouch for you. They're the one that can potentially tell you to write your job description in the backseat of a Lincoln town car, you know, like that's not going to come from you being a team of one and only looking yeah. at yourself. Like that's how, frankly, I think a lot of people get ahead who perhaps aren't as talented as others. Mm-hmm. They, they have better people skills. They know who to, it's not even suck up to, it's who to support and yeah. where to focus their time and energy really efficiently. Because if you're just chugging away at your job, the job that was written down when you got hired every single day, like you're not really helping much of anybody. Yeah. And, and, and really leaning into like Orlando and Lori, I had back to back as bosses they were like completely different creatures. Like mm-hmm. what it took to make Orlando happy and, and how you would engage with him and his on his terms was totally, Orlando was like big picture, mm-hmm. let's work at the marker board. You know, I could, you know, like emails I would get to him when he's on a train, that's when I'd send him, you know, cause that's when he would look at them and mm-hmm. respond to this Blackberry. Like I had these things. Lori was very like details, mm-hmm. show me the analysis, show me the rigor, let's sit down. And, and also like, let me think about it, let me sleep on it, you know? So, so very different kind of like, you know, psyche of, of a boss and, and how she liked information. If I got kind of passionate, like Orlando loved passion. Lori really didn't like it. She thought it was almost emotion, right? Interesting. And, and, and so I had to completely rebuild my swing because I, I, who I was for Orlando, I couldn't be for Lori and be successful. And so, but it was about working with them. It was about knowing what Lori wanted for her boss and the way she would think about things. And we got into a rhythm. I could just go in. I could just ask for things. I could ask for things for the company, for my nonprofit. I you know I'd say, Hey, can we have a board meeting here? Will you buy a table? And it just became a lot of yeses, mm-hmm. but it was because I knew how to ask for those things and have the business context in play. And uh, I had a great, great ride there and was eventually a senior vice president. Um, and, uh, and, and the new chief marketing officer saw what I was doing and said, well, you need to report to me too. And so I had a dual report to the head of HR and the head of marketing, you know, at a $5 billion company, which is a crazy job. And, and then I left to take some time off thinking that I was going to be the head of HR at a mid-sized company. And I was interviewing at a number of mid-sized companies to be the head of HR. And I guess there was different plans for me in store. Um, it's funny, now I'm an entrepreneur, but 
people are always like, well, when you left it, people kind of collapsed me leaving with being an entrepreneur. I'm like, no, I didn't leave to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I left to take a break to get another job somewhere else. And I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. And through a, a series of events, I, you know, people, you know, thought I was an entrepreneur and put an entrepreneur on a name tag and an event I went to once and stuff. Mm, and interesting. I, and I kind of was like, you know, kind of a higher power at work. And I, I, I remember driving home from this executive education uh, thing I went to and I was in driving from DC to uh, New York and I was on a bridge in Delaware and I thought I can be an employee or I can be an entrepreneur. And those were very different paths. Like the things I would do to be successful as an employer are very, very different than as an entrepreneur. So I decided to be an entrepreneur from a place of like identity and like being, and it wasn't like I had a business plan and a product and, you know, a sales strategy. It was like, I just want to be a person who like figures out problems and helps solve it and makes money doing it. And, and I quickly realized that small business owners needed advice. And that's how I started my coaching practice. And, you know, I got a referral from a friend and I, uh, this guy, my, my first client, he called me and he said, you know, we had a couple, a call and he said, well, you know, what's it cost and what's this take? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I said, let's have breakfast and, you know, I'll, I'll understand your needs and I'll put together a full proposal and all the pricing will be super clear. There'll be no surprises. And, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, what's it cost? I said, well, like, honestly, I don't know because I don't know what you need. He's like, well, I've got some questions and I'm going to be wanting your advice at this breakfast. And I don't believe advice is free. So how much is the breakfast? And I said, $500. He said, I'll see you Monday. So we had a 48 minute breakfast and I made 500 bucks and that was my first client. And that started, that started a much longer term five-year relationship with someone who, you know, is extremely prominent in their field, um, uh, you know, and an extremely savvy business person. But, but it was just a matter of kind of, you know, picking up the phone, following up, setting a price and making it happen. So, well, and I feel like entrepreneurship, you know, you went the coach route, which is not that dissimilar from consulting, right? It's just kind of an, on a human basis as opposed to a company basis. So perhaps the leap wasn't as great as it, as it can be when people are like, I want to be an entrepreneur and they have no fucking clue what their translatable skills are and all of that. Yep. But you know, and how old are you at this point? So I was 30 or so, 31 maybe. And um, how old was this gentleman, your first client? Uh, probably close to double my age. Not quite at that point, but he was, he was 20, 25 years, you know, greater than I. And what made, what made him have that confidence in hiring a, a 30 year old, you know, kid that's never, I mean, kid. Yeah. yeah. I, some that days person, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm 34. Some days I feel like a child. Other days I feel like I'm in the nursing home, but yeah, yeah. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's like, you're barely a fourth of the way through your career and you're going to be consulting for this guy who's very prominent in his field. What do you think it was about either your approach or your own confidence that made him feel comfortable putting his faith in you? Well, when people hire for professional services and it could be a coach and an accountant, it could be a lawyer, whatever it means, a, a PR person. I would say you want to look at the two C's, which is credibility and chemistry. So mm -hmm. the credibility is like, are they believable in their domain space? Which my credibility was a little bit less, but I still was the senior vice president of a big global right. company, awards, magazine covers, all these things. So I had credibility around how to get, and he had, he had people problems. Mm. So he saw me as a people management person. So that's how I kind of bridged that gap. And on the chemistry, a lot of it was I could dance with him, right? So I learned that in management consulting. I worked for, you know, a top four firm. And so it was very much like read the client. The client's talking fast, you talk fast. The client's standing mm -hmm. up, you stand up. Like the client's going slow, you go. Like it was just all about kind of that mirroring. So I mirrored. Which you've been doing since enterprise. 
Yeah, exactly. Like every job you've had, you've brought up a situation where you've had to mirror or adapt to the people that were ultimately making the decisions. Do you feel like that's an intuitive thing or something people can learn to do? I think it's both. I think some people are kind of born with a natural agility and situational awareness, but I think most people can be much better at it. Um, I think it's around thoughtfulness. I think it's around paying attention and caring, um, having emotional intelligence. And the biggest thing is to slow down. Mm. People tend to speed up and they get nervous or they lack confidence. Mm -hmm. They kind of rely on the thing they always do. Sometimes it's just to slow down and say like, what's going on here? Like what's, you know, Mm -hmm. you may be in a meeting to talk about a particular thing, but they're like really clearly upset. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just say, Hey, like, you know, you seem, and we don't know each other very well, but you seem a little upset. Is there anything you want to, you know, and they open up about something entirely Mm -hmm. different. And then the trust is there so deeply that of course, whatever you went, they're like, of course we're going to hire you for that. But like, you know, let's start, you know, and, and, and so I think on the chemistry side, some of that is again, like, how do they feel? when they see your name on their caller ID or text message or email inbox, mm-hmm. like, cause you can be really smart on the credibility side, but if you're kind of a dick or no, off, doesn't they, matter, you don't get yeah. the value. Right. So that's what kind of thing made the difference is the credibility and chemistry combo. I think those two C's are incredibly important in just about anything. I mean, yeah. wow. Yeah. The chemistry between people. And I agree with you. I think part of it's intuitive being able to mirror somebody and match somebody. And I think some people are better than others. Do you have individualism as one of your top five strengths? From the uh, finder. I can't remember what my, I've taken so many assessments on strengths. I know, I they all but, blend but, together. But, but I, I can tell you others would observe me independent of the assessment as like being highly individual and unique. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would have to, I would bet money that one of yours yeah. was individualism. It's one of mine too. And it just means that you approach people the way they want to be approached. You match them, you speak their yep. language. I think it's also, it comes down to having empathy for people yep. as well. Just being able to, to put yourself in their place and imagine, and I talk about this with my collaboration clients all the time about, you know, reaching out to potential partners. You have to first imagine what it is that they want and ask what they want and hear them when they tell yep. you, you don't prescribe what you already brought to the table, you know, thinking about them. And so many people are already thinking about their next question and they're not listening to the first question's answer. And so they're missing all of those nuggets of the language people are using and the words and the way they're saying it. And, you know, people aren't always straightforward with what they want and need, but you can generally read between the lines. And it sounds like that's 100% one of your superpowers. Totally. And I think that that's something that everyone should work on wherever Mm -hmm. you're at on that continuum or scale, like up it. Because oftentimes, you, know, you may go in with 10 questions, it's good to be prepared. But the first question, if you listen, may spur a whole thought or direction. You don't answer, go through the other nine questions and you got to have the agility mm-hmm. to say, let's follow this. And where does that go? And that's where the energy is. And, yeah. and I think being quick on my feet is something that I'm generally pretty good with. And I think just to kind of have the, the confidence and the patience and the curiosity, like let something emerge mm. is, you know, versus like you're going to put someone through your process. And, and also, like you said, it's speaking to the things that you talk to your collaboration clients about that, that their clients care about, mm-hmm. right? And I remember when I was at uh, Marsh, my large insurance company, you know, we did a lot of stuff around social media. We used internally to get people to collaborate. Social media was sort of like this dirty word. We had like a lot of older, curmudgeonly kind of people. Mm-hmm. And they were all like, oh, Twitter, you know? And, and so I just stopped saying social media. And I talked about revenue growth. Mm. And they were like, come right in. Would you like Go a glass on. of tea? Like, you know, yeah. It was just because we 
we had cut so many expenses that our profitability had skyrocketed, but our revenues were flat for like years and everyone was like crapping their pants. They didn't know how to raise organic revenue. We get like a, we get, you know, we, okay, uh, inorganic revenue through acquisition, but truly organic revenue, everyone was sort of scratching their head about what to do. So when I was having conversations around what to do about that, they had all the time in the world. Now, mind you, the method was social media, but we just didn't use the old SM term because we talked about growth. Oh, that's what SNM stands for. I Give me that know. G, not that SNM. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I hope you guys really took some nuggets away from that piece. Okay, so fast forward to today. So you had your very first client. Now you're running this amazing company that has an incredible mission statement. I want to read it again. Innovative career improvement company, revolutionizing the way individuals command their careers. What does that mean? Well, so when we first founded the company, we kind of just wanted everyone to feel powerful in their mm. career and in their life. And so we're really, if you think about, you know, our, our mission is to have people feel powerful at work mm. and most people don't No, they Even don't people with big titles and make a lot of money. They don't feel so powerful. insecure and, and powerful um, is not forceful, mm -hmm. right. But from the inside out to have that sort of glow and radiance and confidence that I think is contextual to each person's values and style and aspiration and so what I saw was coaching is amazing. Executive coaching is amazing. I benefit from getting coaching, but you know, we, a lot of studies we see fewer than about 2% of, you know, white collar knowledge worker professionals ever get executive coaching mm -hmm. in their entire career. Wow. And yet, you know, it is from a brain science and, and development perspective, one of the most effective ways to grow someone and, you know, on performance and potential, which is a lot of times companies will rate people on in a talent review. Mm -hmm. It really helps maximize potential. And in increasingly complex world. So coaching is a, is a field in all areas is booming, but yet it's really expensive. There's three mm -hmm. problems with it, right? It's really expensive. It's really rigid. Like it's done, you know, kind of nine to five, you know, Monday through Friday and in person. And so high performers are selling and coding and financing. They don't have time for that. They don't have time for that. And it's often a little too much, like an hour a week, like I spend with coaching clients. Not everyone wants to spend an hour on their career every single week. Like that can be a lot to think through. So pilot was to address that and we are essentially a virtual career coaching program and it's not a just an advice columnist who's reading to but we run people through a program like running through CrossFit or running through kind of a boot camp where you're gonna learn a variety of things that we my team the coaches I have and the educators and researchers we have my team has put a stake in the ground and says this is what you need to find both success and satisfaction which mm. is a big thing satisfaction which people don't use that word when they talk about careers and work very often. They don't. What, You'll hear fulfillment, if anything. If but anything. it feels different than fulfillment. Yes, yeah, so sat satisfaction almost feels like luxurious as yeah. opposed to fulfillment, which is like basic human needs being fulfilled. Yeah, like, oh, I, you know, I guess I have access to that database, you know, right. or, I, you know, whatever. Or like, you know, or, you know I, had, I had fun at work Sunday, but, I, you know, we really want people to, the part of being powerful is that success and satisfaction. So mm. every week people use our software. They use it on their smartphones, on demand. It's super simple to use. It takes about 10 minutes a week. And they figure out how to get along with their manager. But all the stuff mm. we talked about, manager stuff, we have a whole uh, coaching series called Winning With Your Manager. Mm. And you transform that relationship. We have a whole thing around decoding you. So you... Find ways to explain and reveal yourself to others that make you easier to work with and collaborate with. We have a whole thing about your reputation and you define the narrative about you and you rewrite your bio and you think about how the smallest gestures from where you sit in the room to anything else can say a lot about you. Mm. And so, you know, we work with companies, um, uh, we work with MetLife is our biggest customer and Cadillac, Pandora, Pinterest, 
Um, we work with uh, the nonprofit City Year and Housing Works, others. We're about to close a deal with a government agency that's very, very prominent and well run. Um, and, and companies bring us in to work with their promising talent. Mm. One thing I'm super excited about is um, so many of our end users, we call them members, are minorities. Mm. Um, uh, women, people of color, LGBT, first gen, immigrant, et cetera. And traditional coaching and talent development programs often are just at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, and white guys named John in the yeah, C-suite. There you go. So, and, and so people don't get it until later in their career, et cetera. Mm. So I'm excited about the democratization of coaching. Yeah. And so people can feel powerful earlier in their lives and careers. And we've had um, disproportionate success with women. Hmm. And when we create the company and even the colors, you know, uh, green is our primary color and we have a variety of shades, you know, in green, the human eye can see more shades of green than any other color. That's why they use wow. it in night vision. And I thought that from a diversity perspective, it reflected more people and types of individuals. It represents growth in money and positive outcomes and there's a vibrancy to it. And so that was a big part of it. And even our name, we want to make something very gender neutral. Um, and, and so it's interesting that women have really, you know, felt so empowered by our product mm -hmm. and, we just found out last week that um, one of the top analyst firms in the HR technology space nationwide, uh, we won an award for excellence in women's leadership development. And it was along with a couple other major big companies, like big Fortune 500 companies. And we, along with MetLife, jointly did this because we're, we're totally impacting their female sales force, um, a group that, that in insurance women traditionally service and men sell, um, but now benefit managers are mostly women. And so MetLife needs to have women in the sales process and wants to, and, and they've got a lot of women in sales exec, account executive roles. They want them in leadership and we're working on that together. And it's, uh, it's pretty fantastic. And we just worked with that, that group around getting their needs met. We did a whole analysis of unmet needs and boundaries and all these, no one teaches you these things, but they are completely transformative to finding that satisfaction on one's own terms. And we're doing that 10 minutes a week through software. So, that's what we do now, and that's my my. That's why I, I, I like to have conversations like this to share the message and the principles, and and um, we want more people to work with. We want people to suggest it to your company and all those things. But yeah, how do they um, go about doing that? Say you're listen, you're a listener, and you're like, oh my god, nobody cares about my professional development, my company. Nobody's offered this sort of thing to me. I need this. I want this. Do you have anything that people can take to their their HR team, or what's the best resource? Yes. Well, check out our website, pilot.coach. We'll link to all of this in the show notes, by the way. Totally. And, or, and send me an email. I'm on my email and we, like, we will get you that we have tons of collateral and one pagers and demos and videos and decks and you name it, case studies and, you know, research and numbers, you name it. We got a ton of stuff. Um, but, you know, we have a very, we're, we're affordable, you know, for the price mm -hmm. you typically pay for a coach for one person, you can give pilots to 30 employees. Wow. And we do all the work and it's super easy and there's no IT integration, all these great things. And so we make it really easy and we're talking to a ton of companies. And my hope is we become a household name that, you know, you wouldn't want to work with a company that didn't provide pilot. Right. Know? Do you um, provide any sort of a badge for your clients to put on their, their hiring website? <laughs> so not yet, but it's coming up as like a, is like a sort of perk as a part of the employment yeah. branding experience. And um, also for our members that have been like pilotized, if you've gone through a year of pilot right now, we have a one year program or working expanding that, um, would that be like almost like a credential to say, Hey, like I have this broad base right. of like self-management and professional and uh, efficacy, you know, skills in my stable here. So that's what I, I put in just, you know, I put my life savings in this company, you know, um, you know, we had this, we, you know, fundraising, there's different rounds of fundraising. We did my series Ben, right. And it was... <laughs> It was 
<laughs> all the goddamn money I had plus debt, you know, plus all the income I've made in the last couple of years. We just piled it. So our series been now I own a hundred percent of it. So we don't that work feels with pretty jerks. Good. That feels we don't pretty jerk. Good. We don't work with jerks. We don't do dumb things. We don't have a job switching thing algorithm. We help people find success right where they are. Right. And, and you don't have to take risks or move across town or lose the benefits for your kids or whatever your thing is. Uh, we help people right where they are, which we're really excited about. I feel like you have an opportunity to call something frequent flyer miles or <laughs> you need, you know, what is it? We the uh, pilot the points. High club pilot yes. points. Well, we, so Mile we, high club the, might be a little iffy with the HR it could, stuff. It, it could be. We, we were the pilot crew as our team. We're the crew, but we try not to get too cute on the aviation references because people might want to jab their eye out, you know? Sure, but, sure. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but on occasion, I like the female pilot emoji I'm partial Ooh, to. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of my reference to pilot in text with friends or on Slack and things like that. So. Um, and we try to use, I try to use a female pilot because I think only like six or 7% of commercial aviation pilots are female. So like represent, stay woke. You know? I love so. it. I love that you too, like you've always had a social justice angle. It sounds like from the time you were very small through high school, through college, through every job you've had. And now you're getting to combine a little bit of all of those past lives of yours into your own company and be able to have the autonomy to drive it in whatever direction you want. That's got to feel very good. It, it does. And I think the fact that this isn't just about making money, mm -hmm. but it's about meaning. It's about yeah. impact. That Those are currencies that are in much more scarce supply. And when we have an impact, the money will follow. You create value, money mm -hmm. will follow. So I'm not worried about making money in the broad sense of it. In the short term, of course, the business owner, I worry about cash flow. But in the broader sense of it, this isn't about money, although I plan to, and hopefully we'll make a lot of money. It's about really fixing a problem. And you know, everything in the market is basically focused on fixing companies. Hmm. And as a former consultant, management consultant, it's real hard to fix a company. Companies generally are not very fixable. Also, fix companies small. are made up of concrete and wood and nails. They're, they're not fixable. The people inside yeah. of the building are what make the company. Totally. Marcus Buckingham talks about talent activation. And we really look at us as activating each person within their locus of control to take responsibility and stop being armchair quarterbacks and, you know, being in the stands and get out on the field and, you know, fix something, advocate for something, you know, people don't know that they're supposed to speak up and ask what they want and solve their own problems. And so I think, you know, in schools are not teaching this, training departments are not teaching this. And yet it's the thing that makes work work for everybody because employers love it. They're like, oh my gosh, people in pilot, they're tearing it up on sales. They're asking for what they need. They're not complaining anymore. They're figuring stuff out. They're making mm -hmm. requests. Like they're, they need a second monitor. They freaking order one. Like life's good. Like, you know, like, and so that's where um, we want to give people that voice and that sense of agency and ownership in getting their needs met at work and beyond. And just to think broader about their careers and who they are. And the thing we do at Pi well, the first thing we just introduced a brand new thing called reclaiming lost time. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that you do in pilot is you find an hour a week that is lost due to a time leak. You mm -hmm. typically find much more than that and you reclaim it immediately. And that is the hour that you invest in yourself weekly going forward because you just found an hour. It's not extra thing to do. You found a lost hour. You pilot 10 minutes a week and you got another 50 minutes to do other things for you. And it's like, it's just the start. And it, it, you know, as a coach, people can change things very quickly. Lives can change mm -hmm. very quickly. But it's a lot of times it's about that sort of awareness and that sort of planning and problem solving the action. And that's what our product and our, our commitment is 
to instill that. And it's a work in progress. We have a lot to figure out. Uh, we have a lot, you know, plenty of problems to solve and things that are, you know, so-so. But in general, I'm excited about having, I think, a very winning product that's already having a massive impact on our members' lives. Uh, I mean, I can only imagine how how wonderful it must see. I mean, we've known each other for a little over three years now, and Pilot Pilot didn't exist yet. I don't think no. we met. You no. were still doing individual coaching, and I remember just being so impressed and blown away by you then. And then in the coming year, Pilot emerged, and now only a couple years later, it's this it, this massive B two B amazing tool that's helping so many people. And I'm just very proud of you. Well, thank you. I remember sitting on that log at yep. camp on the last day and having a chat. And and I camp was actually a wonderful place where I got to describe Pilot um, mm-hmm. and intro it. I think about seventy plus times. I was keeping yeah. track for a while. And man, it was ugly. It was it was like a stumbling, awkward. It was like watching someone you know trip on a sidewalk and they kind of stumble <laughs> down. And they kind of don't <laughs> fall or they do, and you kind of just wince but you can't look away. That was me describing Pilot, but. But towards the end of camp, I got a more and more crisp articulation of who we were. And I was working in the background on it. I already mm-hmm. had, had hired staff and we had incorporated and a variety of other things. And, you know, it was about a year later, about uh, 10 months later that we launched publicly. And, um, and, and you know, and, and to me, it feels like it's going so slowly because I'm impatient and I want it to happen. But, you know, but it's, it's consistent and steady. And the, max, and the most important thing for a startup in this first five years it's, is the rate of learning. Mm. independent of the industry. So you want to maximize the rate of learning. And that's what we're optimizing around right now. And we're, we've learned a lot. Sometimes I go to bed at night and I have a headache because of the amount of freaking knowledge <laughs> that goes into this noggin every day, you know? Well, it's a good noggin. So it's safekeeping in there. <laughs> it's, a big, it's a big, it's a big one at least, you know, so. <laughs> it's got a lot of good stuff inside yeah. of it. Well, Ben, I could talk to you for hours, but for for sake of your busy schedule, I will let you go. But thank you so much for sharing all of these nuggets of wisdom. I hope you guys listening got some great takeaways from this, from being ballsy or, you know, whatever the female equivalent is, going after jobs that aren't I even listed. I mean, Ben's totally right. I feel like it's probably even more than 50% at this point that are not shown. The hidden job market is very real. Um, And then having empathy and being able to match the people around you and speak to the way that they want to be spoken to, whether they realize that or not, it goes so far for both you and them. And so much of what you talked about comes back to really relating to humans and hearing them when they speak and, you know, doing your best to be a team player while still making sure you're taking care of your own success and satisfaction needs. What a synthesis. Well, oh. and then, and if you want to be bold and you want to bring pilot to your company, I'll make you look good. So reach out to me and we'll tag team it and make it happen. It's a very easy yes for management, you know, because yeah. it's employee led things. So I would love to get it. That's my one kind of ask is if people here and it resonates, let's talk about it. We can give you some coaching activities to try for free and, uh, and have everyone be in the conversation that Bailey is creating with so many people about taking ownership in your career and being smart and responsible and having the life that you want. You can love your job. It's not that hard. I promise. It isn't. It really isn't. Well, thanks, Ben. Guys, definitely go check out the show notes for all of these amazing links. Reach out to Ben. He's an amazing person to have in your network. I know I'm very thankful to have you, Ben. So thank you again for being here and we'll catch you next time, guys.